Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Today, an inside look at some of the striking similarities between sports and comedy, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. My guest today is Don Roy King, who's been the director of Saturday Night Live for the last 14 years. It's the peak of a seven-decade career producing and directing live TV. SNL's been affected by our current situation just like spectator sports. The last month of SNL shows have all been done using at-home video and mostly without the help of its director. So Don's perspective on the entertainment world, both stage and sports, is very interesting indeed. A Pittsburgh native and Penn State graduate, King's career has taken him to Pirates TV broadcasts, to the Mike Douglas show, to Good Morning America, to CBS News, and so many more credits. Uh, He is credited with directing more live network television than anyone in the history of television, and he's been honored for it plenty. Nine Emmy Awards and six Directors Guild Awards just for his work on SNL, which he took over in 2006. Don and I share that Penn State connection, but he also has a pretty extensive sports background, helping to cover three Winter Olympics during his time at CBS, and he has fabulous stories about breaking into the business as a Pirates TV producer, all because he could drive a stick shift. Plus, there was the time he fired some jabs at Muhammad Ali, who knew him as the other Don King. On top of all that, SNL hosts have included a number of sports celebrities over the years. On Don's watch, the hosts have included Peyton and Eli Manning, LeBron James, Ronda Rousey, and others. To speak about his life in TV, his time at SNL, the similarities between live TV and live sports, and where it might all be headed in these changing times, here's my conversation with a legend in the television industry, Mr. Don Roy King. Don, I believe the official count is that you were the fourth director in the history of Saturday Night Live. Now, any good Pittsburgh uh, person knows that there have only been three Steeler head coaches in the last 50 years. So is that a good comparison <laughs> as far as you're concerned? I think there's, I think there's a reason for that, too. Uh, <laughs> although uh, one of those four only lasted it uh, two seasons, I think, because uh, he... Uh, he didn't make it to the Super Bowl, but uh, I was lucky enough to take the team uh, at least into the playoffs. <laughs> Tell me something. How does the 90 minutes between 11.30 and 1 a.m. on Saturday nights resemble a sporting event to you? Well, there are so many similarities. It is that same adrenaline rush. It's that same sense of, hey, uh, we're a, we're a team, and I, I've got to call the shots here. 
And uh, there are things that can go wrong, but you got to move past that and get right to the next thing and not dwell on what just happened. You're headed for that uh, finish line. You keep your eye on the clock. You uh, depend on all of those teammates to to uh, follow uh, the, the uh, game plan and fill in the holes where where they've got to do the, the uh, uh, blocking and and tackling. And uh, it is the it's the same feeling when it ends that uh, hey we we made it and most of the time we win. Yeah, it sounds like you have to put the bat at bats behind you pretty quickly, just like a baseball player. That's uh, that's exactly right, and it and it has it. The very first time I did it, the very first time I I was uh, standing in a college course calling the shots, ready one take one, and camera three. Be careful of me; he may talk. You know, I'm not easy to go two shot. Okay, now uh, I and I thought, man, this is the same feeling as as quarterbacking a football team, the same mm-hmm. adrenaline rush, the same sense of, uh, of, uh, of teamwork. And uh, I still get that same rush every Saturday night. You know, I can still recall um, the Eddie Murphy show from 1984, which I know he hosted again recently for the first time since then. But something in his monologue has always stuck with me when he says at the end, he goes, listen, you're going to find some stuff in the show that you're not going to like. And you're going to say, you know what? That's not funny. And everybody kind of chuckled <laughs> in the audience. Uh, yeah. And it kind of made me curious as to what you consider a good show. What's your personal scorecard look like at the end of the night, knowing whether or not you had a good game or a good show? Mm-hmm. Well, my scorecard, at least uh, initially, is a little different from most people, certainly different from the audience's scorecard. And mine is not really based on what sketches uh, were well-received or how many laughs they got. My scorecard is based on did I properly present the writer's material? Did I, did I do a good job from a, from a technical and a, and a cinematic standpoint to uh, not get in the way, not to... Uh, not shoot a bad shot or not miss a, miss a punchline or not change a graphic at the wrong time to destroy a weekend update uh, punchline. <laughs> My job is, uh, is to, to uh, offer the material to the audience in the best way possible to let them decide whether it works or not, whether it lands or not, whether it's funny or not. And so um, my initial my initial reaction is a little personal and selfish. And uh, uh, and if I played a good game, I feel good about it. Now the next day, I might relook at uh, at what the show was and what worked and what didn't. And and as long as it wasn't a, a, a cinematic flaw or a camera choreography flaw or a microphone flaw or a lighting flaw, as long as it wasn't production oriented, I can be a little more objective about it and say, you know, that that that, that whole premise didn't work or. Uh, one of the cast members uh, broke character and sort of undermined the, the writer's purpose. But initially, initially, I'm interested in just uh, how it looked and how clean it was. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that almost every PR head of a New York sports team has told their players in order to be successful in New York uh, and to make sure that you're successful at your craft uh, – don't read the papers. Don't pay attention to what the media is saying about you. 
How does that relate to your world? I mean, critique is part of everything. Everybody looks for their reviews, good reviews, bad reviews. It kind of uh, fuels what's happening in the coming weeks and months. So are you a guy that likes to read the press clippings or does that not affect your job? Uh, it does affect it, but I do my best to avoid it <laughs> for those the same reasons that those uh, managers and general managers uh, uh, give advice to, to their athletes. I was given the same advice and just avoid avoid the the, the buzz and uh, avoid the uh, avoid the online reaction to a any of the material. After the third show, uh, after my third season, I think. I, I just was randomly looking for stuff and came upon a critique of my work uh, from the first season based on what it had been. And and this critic was um, critical of how I uh, approached the live music sketches and how different I was directing them from uh, from the, my predecessor. And uh, and and it was a it was painful and and it was critical. And I thought. Yeah, I I would have to change my approach. I'd have to change Lauren Michaels' uh, uh, directive mm -hmm. to live up to what he expected or what he wanted. And I thought, I I, I can't do that. I, I'm not directing for this guy. I'm directing for uh, for Lauren, for the music, for the writers, and for the audience. And I I ignore all of that. You know, your audience in particular has, I think, a pretty easy way of telling whether or not they like the show, and it's whether or not it's funny. Um, does your job as director, does does that get seen or noticed so much by an average person, you think? How much is what? How much does what you do impact what the viewer is actually feeling about whether or not they enjoyed that show, whether or not they thought it was funny? Well, I think it's uh, particularly impactful, but if it's noticed, if people at home are saying, wow, that's a great shot, or boy, that was well-directed, then I'm not serving the material. I'm not doing my job. I, in fact, am trying to show off mm. and, and distracting from what really counts, and that's those characters and their relationship and the progress of the sketch and the punchlines. And my job is to stay out of the way, just present it in the, in, in the cleanest way possible without uh, intruding uh, on, on the audience uh, uh, focus. And so I learned that very early on, that uh, the, the, uh, the more I show off, the, the, the more I'm likely to get in the way. And a person at home would say, boy, that's a terrific angle. Oh, look at that. Look at that <laughs> shot. That's a, how did they do that live? Well, then, then I've undermined the, my, my real purpose. I'm curious your take on this. I know that after covering professional baseball up close for 20 years, I noticed a difference in just watching them play versus watching them prepare. And I feel like you really don't get a, a, a real uh, great understanding of just how talented these guys are until you watch them prepare and practice and train for the event. And when you see the event um, and you see all the work that went into it, it just takes your appreciation of it to a whole nother level. Is it the same for you watching your cast? 
not just watching the cast, but watching every single production person who contributes to Saturday Night Live. The best people at what they do are uh, are working on that show. Now, it's partly because there's no other show like it anymore, partly because uh, once you get there, you you stay. If you're if you're that talented, if you're that fast, then then it, it's a it's a great place to be and to stay. And there's there's really no place to move on to. Uh, yes, I couldn't agree more that, uh, that I watched this show come together in four days. There is nothing on paper until Wednesday morning. And Wednesday morning, we sit around, uh, or Wednesday late afternoon, we sit around a big table and read as many as 40 sketches to sort of script in hand with, uh, with the cast and the, and the host and Lauren and I sit at this big table. The rest of the staff sits in or around this big room is sort of a pseudo audience. And we read all, all of these sketches. Lauren narrows it down to the actual 10 or 12 that will amount that night. And for the first time, Wednesday night, I take the, the, those selected scripts into another room and hand it off to the set designers and the hair and makeup people, the wardrobe people, special effects people. They start from scratch Wednesday night and they just uh, scatter, move off on their own. And uh, we come back on in on Thursday, rehearse some of the sketches that don't need any props or scenery. You know, we can use rehearsal blocks or or or, or just uh, fake fake some entrances and doors. Um, and uh, each sketch gets about an hour's work, and that that hour is work where the, the the people who are designing the music for it, the camera operators, the lighting directors are 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 working for that hour just on how to to make that little sketch work. We come back in on Friday. Now we have a little bit more material to work with. We we rehearse the rest of the sketches. Each again gets no more than an hour or so to uh, to block on the floor to uh, rehearse with the cameras and uh, come back in Saturday. And and now that whole giant studio is filled with all of the props we need, all of the special effects we need, all of the lighting uh, uh, changes that are that are asked for. And it comes together. Uh, we do a dress rehearsal at eight o'clock that night, with with as much as twenty minutes more material than we need. Between ten o'clock and eleven thirty, that whole the whole show changes. Where Lauren has thrown out a few sketches, but there are um, rewrites within each of the sketches. And then at eleven thirty, we just fly sort of a little bit blind to 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 bring that all together. But it all comes together because. Each of those athletes, each of those performers, each of those skilled artists have managed to, to just on their own bring it together in, in three days. And that's not to mention all of those uh, outside features that we do, you know, the digital shorts sure. or any of the yeah. tape pieces that are done on the outside. They come together in the exact same four-day period. And I don't even see them until uh, that dress rehearsal. And I'll watch a sketch that was done out in Brooklyn somewhere, and I'll say, oh, my God, where did they get that set? Or how did they do that special effect? Or that whole thing is scored, and everybody's singing in tune. And it's all because uh, the best people at what they do are in that operation. And that's very similar, I'm sure, to, to a real uh, tight pro uh, uh, sports team. 
Coaches certainly have go-to performers when you're talking about, I think, especially more in football, basketball, uh, sports like that. There are people, you want the ball in their hands when the game is on the line. Do you have go-to performers? Have you experienced go-to performers, ones that you need to have in certain amount of sketches or certain sketches, and ones who just know how to bring out the best in material and make the show great? Great question, and the answer is absolutely. And some of that is uh, experience. Uh, uh, Keenan Thompson has been uh, with the show from the first day I was, and uh, he is just brilliant. He, he brings something special to every single character, no matter how big the role and how many lines he has. He jumps in and adds uh, uh, that special Keenan Thompson touch. Uh, Kate McKinnon is the most versatile uh, actress I have ever worked with. She is a sort of a shy, quiet woman who just disappears into characters and brings them to life and, and does uh, amazing impersonations uh, of, uh, of the widest range of, of women I've ever seen. And Cecily Strong is uh, strong. She is uh, just as talented and 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 has that ability to uh, to to embrace a character and bring bring a comedy line to life in a way that no no director no writer ever expected because those uh, those three are, are are core and of course they've been with the show for a long time but uh, they're just brilliant pros who are uh, uh, highly underrated because I get to see from the very first read through to that final performance and know how gifted they are. There have been any number of uh, sports hosts scattered really from the beginning of the show's history to now. I think the latest one was J.J. Watt. You've gotten to work with a few others, uh, both Peyton and Eli Manning, LeBron James, uh, I think Lance Armstrong, several others uh, along the way have, uh, have had that crossover appeal. What do you like to see in the personality or background of one of these athletes that makes them suited to host a show like Saturday Night Live? I have found the athletes to be just naturals, and naturals in ways that no one expects. Every time I look up on the list and see that Lauren has brought in an athlete, I think, oh, man, what kind of what kind of comedy uh, chops does he have? Or, or, or is he going to be willing to, to put on a dress and, and, and these guys are, are super macho idols and superstars. Uh, I, 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 every time just worry a little bit that, that they have no idea what they're getting themselves into, hmm. but inevitably, well, almost inevitably they come in with, with a willingness to do anything. And I've come to the conclusion, well, it's because they are so comfortable in who they are. That they, that they say, yeah, sure, I'll put on a dress. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. They also are used to working uh, in, in a team. I mean, they're, they're, they're team guys. And they're also used to working for, for a coach or listening to, to guidance. And they'll turn to say, hey, how do I do this? Or can I do that? I mean, there's some actors who are a little reluctant to ask for that kind of help because they think, oh, I'm an actor. I'm supposed to be able to. Know, I'm supposed to know how to do this, read lines, and play a character. But, but athletes are willing to say, "Hey, show me what you think, or, or read that line for me," and uh, are are just great team players. And perhaps most important of all, people forget that that the real panic of, of hosting Saturday Night Live 
is standing up there in front of a live audience, a live national audience. Well, those athletes have been performing in front of live audiences all their lives, yeah. and they are very comfortable in, 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 in that situation. Uh, we even had uh, uh, Ronda Rousey hosting once, yeah. and, and she was terrific. Uh, and, and, and did some great physical stuff, but also did some character work. And all the ones you mentioned were particularly strong. Now, I will will say that uh, uh, Michael Phelps, uh, who is not really a a team athlete, not Mm -hmm. really the same kind of uh, sports history as as those others, he struggled a bit. He He tried, and he was willing to do anything, but he didn't quite have the same natural gifts that, the, that those others did. Peyton Manning's natural gifts for performing are probably pretty evident to anybody who's seen his commercial work and any of the other things he's really done. Uh, his hosting shot with you was a while ago now. It was in 2007. Could right. you tell back then what we all see now from him? The first day. No. The, the first read-through, that Wednesday read-through. He brought stuff that, that people said, whoa, that's just natural gift. And he was comfortable with it. He, he just had great timing, just has a natural comedy flair. And that, yes, his commercial work since has, has uh, confirmed it. But with us, uh, he, he, he was brilliant. What and about his brother Eli? Was good yeah. too. His, brother, his brother is kind of low-key and not quite as uh, outgoing as Peyton. But Eli did a couple of sketches that, that had that had a lovely, more subtle, but certainly a, a, a funny touch. As a guy who's had a sports background, I, you know, whatever you watch, do you have a wish list of certain guys who you think might have that sort of crossover appeal, a national appeal, and uh, maybe would be good in the same vein as some of the guys we're talking about? Well, I don't, I don't get to know them uh, any any bit beyond seeing a post-game interview. And I, I, I don't know. And I don't know how Lauren Michaels uh, figures it out or how he has a sense that, that those athletes, any given athlete might have something to offer. I certainly don't. And I've been shocked by everyone who's come in. Hmm. And, uh, I just, I just, uh, hope to see on the host list, um, any, any professional athlete. I mentioned your sports background, and it's quite varied. One of the first uh, main sports jobs you had was as a producer for Pirates television broadcasts in 1969. Over-the-air broadcasts in 1969 were not 150 games. It was about, what, maybe 30 or 40 games. But the way you got the job, uh, you described it to me. Listen, I have always told groups of students when I speak to them, uh, and we're both Penn State grads, when I speak to people, I say the internship is one of the most valuable things you can ever have. Your internship at KDKA Television was incredibly valuable, but not for some of the reasons we may think. Uh, you got a job producing Pirates Baseball mainly because you could drive stick shift. Would you like to explain? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, my, you know, between my junior and senior year at Penn State, I had that internship. It was 10 weeks in the summer at, at KDKA Radio and Television. And it was a terrific internship. Every week I was into a different department. And, uh, and so I got to know a lot about how a television station, a radio station works. 
And and although it's a unionized station, although it's a very big and, and, and successful one, they allowed me to do much more than I would have if I had been an intern at uh, NBC. Uh, so I was able to, to actually do some things. Uh, one, one Saturday, I was assigned to television news and... Uh, they ran out of reporters when there was a, a robbery on the on, on the north side, and they said, "Well, uh, hey, uh, Don, take this camera crew out there and try to you know get, get some background footage and and interview people and see what you can if you can get the details of, about that about that robbery." Well, my my reporting got on the air. I was an intern who who reported uh, a story on 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 KDKA News. Uh, another week, I was assigned to KDKA Radio, and I I, uh, I wrote some promotional announcements that all of the DJs recorded, and so my writing got on to KDKA Radio. The only week uh, that that was less than productive was a week when uh, I was in television promotion, and they were promoting the new fall season on CBS, and had hired a jingle writer to write little one minute songs about the new shows. And they had hired dancers and a choreographer to go out into into landmark areas of Pittsburgh to do these little one minute do these little one minute uh, jingles. Uh, and the day before we were to go out, the production manager said, "Anybody here drive a stick shift?" And I raised my hand. He said, "Oh, good, because uh, we we rented a camper to be sort of the traveling dressing room for the dancers, and and it's a it's a standard on a standard transmission, and uh, and you, you, we need somebody to drive the truck around." So I spent the week driving this camper, and I couldn't even go on to the set most of the time because I had to sit in the camper to to protect it. Every once in a while, I would carry some cokes out to the dancers, but it was a, a lot of wasted time, I thought. It was the least productive of my 10 weeks at KDKA. But when the, and when the internship ended, before I went back for my senior year, I asked the production manager, I said, man, I would love to work here someday. Give me some advice. How would you, how would you recommend that I start my career to, to eventually get back here? He said, well, as soon as you graduate, get a job in a small station somewhere and, and learn the basics, get to, to, to work some uh, camera or some audio, maybe get to direct some stuff, and, uh, and then let me know. Well, I did just that. As soon as I graduated, I got a job at the station connected to the educational station connected to Penn State. And I worked there for about eight months and, and uh, just lucked out that they, the, the, the director I was assigned at, to be assistant to quit two weeks after I was there, and they made me the director. So I was a director two weeks into my career. And I learned what I could learn at that educational station and then and, uh, applied for a job at a little UHF station in San Jose, California. And I drove all across country and worked in this little station for another eight months where, where about five of us did what 105 do it, uh, at a network show. But I therefore I, I developed some real skills and had a tool bag full of things I could offer. So I called this guy up at, at Pittsburgh at KDKA. I said, Hey, I followed your advice and I got my experience at two different stations. And do you have anything for me there at KDKA? And he said, wait a minute, Don King, you know something, I, I just can't place you. <laughs> I said, oh, man, I, I'm, the, I'm the only intern who ever covered a story. I, I did a, a, a covered a news uh, robbery over the, on the north side for, for a news on a Saturday. He said, no, nah, man, I'm sorry, we get a lot of interns come through here. I, I can't place you. I said, well, I, I wrote a whole uh, pro, uh, promotional campaign for, for KDKA Radio. He said, Don King, what, wait a minute. Wait. He said, are, are, you the, are you the kid that drove the stick shift? 
I said, yeah, that was me. He said, hey, you were terrific at that. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, I do have a job for you. If you want to, if you just want a summer job, I can only commit to the summer, but we need somebody to, to, to travel to every stadium and, and sort of produce the, the pirate games from the, from the, um, the announce booth. You'll just sit there and you'll be in, you'll be in communication with master control back here in Pittsburgh, but you'll feed promotional announcements to Bob Prince and let him know when we're back from commercial and you'll just sort of coordinate from the, from the, uh, from the announce booth. Well, having grown up in Pittsburgh, man, yeah. what a dream job that was. I got to travel with the team. I got to meet and work with Bob Prince. Uh, and, and I spent that whole summer, uh, on, on cloud nine, cloud 10. <laughs> and, um, uh, when the season ended, they asked me to stay, stay around and do the preseason games for Steeler football. And when that season ended, that was, by the way, Terry Bradshaw's first season mm. with the Steelers. And they asked me to, uh, to stay on. And I became a staff director where I directed the, uh, a newscast and I directed a, a talk shows and I directed telethons and documentaries. And then they started a weekly magazine show with little feature stories uh, of uh, cool people and interesting, uh, interesting stories about the Pittsburgh area. And it was a dream job. It was the biggest leap in my career. And it led right to my being hired at a local station in New York to do similar kind of work. And it was all because I could drive a stick shift. <laughs> and it, and it's great, like you said, uh, as a Pittsburgh kid, you know, KDKA, it's legendary there. Uh, and as a sports fan, as a pirate fan, uh, it's you know, it's ascending to a, 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 such a terrific post at a young age, and being able to have that wow, can't wait to go to work type of feeling. Uh, yes. But I'm I'm curious where where were you and what were you feeling uh, four days after you turned 13, Bill Mazeroski hit his home run in 1960, broke Yankees fans' hearts. They still talk about it here. But I've always thought that every sports fan has his core, really uh, terrific sports moments, really between the ages of like 8 and 14. And you're right yes. in that wheelhouse for Bill Mazeroski. Tell me what was happening in your life then. Oh, man, that uh, that still resonates with me. That event made me believe that that anything was possible. It made me an optimist. It made me convinced that that, that, that I, I could I could win the World Series too, at least mm. on some on some uh, uh, philosophic level. And I think that 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 kind of optimism and that kind of self confidence and that kind of belief that hey uh, uh, we can we can be giant killers here. I could be a giant killer, and uh, that has resonated with me ever since. Uh, you still a pirate fan? You still a Steelers fan? How close do you pay attention? I'm, I'm still a pirate and Steeler fan. Yeah, uh, and uh, last season took my whole family to a pirate game, and we, we rented one of the one of the party boxes, and we just had a wonderful time. Uh, and that's a very cool stadium. Although I must say that that I uh, I still have dreams of uh, Force Field. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how how often did you go to that place when you were a kid? Oh, a lot. Sitting in the right field bleachers, um, and not whole day, yelling, "Mr. Clemente, Mr. Clemente," <laughs> hoping that he would turn around and wave. And uh, and uh, to 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 this day, I think those are the 
the strongest of my childhood memories. When you moved into a network gig at Good Morning America, it took you a lot of different places. And one of them, um, it, it, I love the story behind this because, you know, boxing fans know Don King. Uh, they don't know <laughs> Don Roy King. Muhammad yeah. Ali knows Don King, and he eventually got to know Don Roy King. You worked Muhammad Ali's last bout which was in the Bahamas against Trevor Burbick in 1981. And yes. you got to sit in and do the interview, uh, uh, sit in on the interview with him after that fight. Tell me about that experience and what your interaction was with, uh, was like with Ali. Well, the background is I, I was a pretty active athlete as a kid. And always uh, was a fan of boxing. I'd never tried it, but I had a curiosity about how, how I would – how I would react to that that challenge, one on one sport where you're half naked in a in a room where people are screaming for one of you to to hurt the other one. Uh, I I just had a curiosity about it. And then when my my athletic career ended, certainly uh, before I got to Penn State, hmm. uh, and my professional career uh, didn't leave much room for anything else. But when I was directing Good Morning America, I was finished at noon, and I. Was got myself into pretty good shape, and I thought, you know, if I don't try this now, I never will. And I found an old-time trainer at the West Side Y here in New York who loved to teach the chess game of the fists, as he called it, and uh, I worked with him for a long time, and so I was 30 years old, 31, uh, 31 at the time, and so I was already over the hill, but because he trained me so well, I was at least able to protect myself, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to try this. Hmm. Uh, and I competed in some amateur events in, in, in West Virginia and in, and in Pittsburgh area, uh, and, and I, I held, held my own. Um, but people at Good Morning America couldn't believe that their director was going to Gleason's gym after the show every every day to to spar with pros, and and so I'd become sort of uh, famous for that attribute in the in the uh, Good Morning America world. A guy named David Hartman uh, was the host at the time. Yeah, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he he was a sports fan too, and he would travel to uh, interview um, athletes at, at many of these events, including including Ali uh, for that last fight. And he would take me along to produce and direct the, the, the remote. Uh, and so we got to see some great fights in, in the 80s, and particularly that one. But uh, uh, as history shows, it was not a great fight for Muhammad Ali. He was he was struggling a little bit, and, and uh, it was he was starting to, to um, ramp down from from his best, and uh, and he and he lost that fight, lost it badly. Uh, so David and I weren't sure that he would even show up for the interview that early early that next morning. But um, we we walked into his hotel and walked down a long corridor to, toward uh, toward where we were to meet him, and sure enough, there he was sitting in a chair right outside there in the lobby, uh, waiting for us to come to 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 do the interview. Uh, he had glasses on to cover a really badly bruised eye, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you'd see just his his hands were swollen, and, and the side of his face, the other side of his face, was swollen, swollen too. And he was slumped over a bit, but he, he saw us coming down the hall. He stood up and shook hands with us both. And, both. and David said, uh, this is my uh, director, Don King. We had a laugh over that. 
Uh, <laughs> but he said, uh, but hey, hey, Don's a boxer, too. Oh, I winced a little bit. Oh, man, don't tell him that. I, you know, I've had about five amateur bouts, and I'm an old guy. But, and and I, I was just a little sheepish about it coming up at all. But Ali took off his sunglasses. He looked out. He said, okay. He said, it's okay, kid. Let's see what you got. He held up his hand like a trainer, and I snapped the jab and, 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 and threw it as hard as I could against, against his hand. And he said, whoa, not bad. He said, you keep it up. You keep it up, son. Keep that up. Well, the fact that this man, probably the most famous man in the world, certainly the most famous boxer probably ever, after the embarrassment of losing this fight, was willing to, number one, show up for the interview, but number two, to be so kind and to be so uh, giving to, to, this, to this little director that he didn't know, man, that impressed me so deeply. And it was a, just a, a soulful event for me and, and on so many levels. Listen, we all know Muhammad Ali's story and what happened in the in the years after, but if you watched him in his prime and watched his charisma and his personality and a lot of the things that you're talking about that's you know just started to escape him shortly around that time or after that time. What do you think he would have been like say, I don't know, in 1976 if he got to host Saturday Night Live? What would that have been like? It would have been the greatest host ever. <laughs> I have no doubt. Yeah, that would, that would have been a fun one to work, I'm sure. So um, I, when I think about comedy, you know, there are certain hotbeds to it. New York, Chicago, L.A., Toronto. Uh, it seems especially when you think about Saturday Night Live, all the people that have come through there, so many have hit those spots. Uh, but where you're from in Pittsburgh has its own little hotbed, and especially considering Saturday Night Live. Marilyn Suzanne Miller actually went to your high school, Gateway High School. Yeah. She was a writer in the uh, early days of the show and uh, wrote some, was a writer for some fabulous sitcoms, uh, legendary sitcoms in the 70s. Dennis Miller is from the area, from Keystone yeah. Oaks High School. Uh, Michael Keaton is not a Saturday Night Live guy, but he's from the area and has obviously made a career in, uh, in movies um, and a uh, very funny guy. Uh, yeah. what, is, what is it about... Pittsburgh, the lifestyle there, the culture there, the quality of life there that seems to bring out this quality in people? Uh, I think it's a great question. And hmm. Michael Keaton, by the way, has appeared several times on the show. Yes. He's never hosted, not, not hosted at least in my time, but he has, he's, he's done guest spots on the show several times. And, uh, and it, it, he is a, is a, a terrific guy and, and uh, uh, and, and a remarkable actor, and 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 funny too. I agree. Um, I guess it must have something to do with um, coal dust. <laughs> uh, no, maybe in a backward way. I mean, uh, 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 Pittsburgh had it had a smog and air pollution problem long before any other city, but it it solved it long before any other city too. Uh, Pittsburgh, I think, is just just a tough progressive town that way that that uh, has amazing work ethic and uh, it, it's just a, a, a tight-knit group that, that goes about its business uh, and, 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 and 
proud of itself. And uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, that I recognize the particular um, thread of humor, but uh, but hmm. you're absolutely right. It it has uh, it's turned out some uh, some remarkable writers and and uh, performers. Don, I'm curious. Listen, I um, I've been around the New York Yankees for 20 years, and I've seen some of the game's best players and its biggest stars. Uh, but it's in the course of doing my job, and I am I, I feel I hope I'm pretty self-aware to to not get too starstruck. There are occasions. I mean, I, I remember riding an elevator once with Do, Joe DiMaggio, and the entire elevator was was uh, quiet as a library because you know you didn't you know there was Joe DiMaggio right there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 still hard to get starstruck sometimes because you know you're around these people and you're hoping to kind of be in their in their little ecosystem and and survive and move on but uh, yeah. it happens to us from time to time uh i have to imagine as a guy who was what 15 16 years old when the beatles were on ed sullivan <laughs> seeing paul mccartney just walk into your office every once in a while as he happens to do it saturday night live that's got to be a pretty crazy moment. Well, you picked the right one. You picked the person that that, that did have me starstruck, and uh, and uh, he he's uh, been a friend of Lorne Michaels for some time. But at least three times in my fourteen years, he's just uh, wandered in to do a little guest shot. He did a major performance in the fortieth anniversary show. He showed up to uh, surprise Alec Baldwin when when uh, Alec was uh, um, I forget what there was something something about Alec was hosting and 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 we surprised him with Paul McCartney, uh, but he is just a a gentleman and and the sweetest guy and he'll come in and one time oh uh, there was a uh, baby grand piano on the floor that was signed for some sketch, uh, and they had just tuned it. And he walked in and just, just sat down at the piano and just started to play. Hmm. And people from all over that building, I'm not just the floor, not just the eighth floor around Studio 8H, but the entire building started to wander in and stand <laughs> around. And he gave us, uh, I think, a 45-minute concert. Wow. For no other reason than he just he just wanted to play. And wanted to sing, and there were also some of the most remarkable of of the of the, uh, the Lennon McCartney songs. And he just he just decided to sing for us, and it was it was it was thrilling. But to me, that was uh, that was a the, the the one time when uh, an idol walked in, and I thought I I, I uh, I'm starstruck. You know, it's and it's funny. He makes the stars starstruck too. I remember the week after that 40th anniversary show, Taylor Swift was on Jimmy Fallon, and she's telling the story about how they're just kind of jamming, and Paul McCartney walks in, and starts singing "Shake It Off," and she's saying, "Oh my God, Paul McCartney is here singing my song." Uh, the stars just—I mean, yeah, I'm sure uh, yeah. every everybody in the building, your cast, everybody is just kind of like, "Holy cow, this is Paul McCartney." Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it's a fabulous feeling and you look around and say this is this is for free in fact i'm being paid to be here <laughs> <laughs> and this is an amazing experience that i've just wandered into on a similar level i and i and almost uh, contradictory to that story is the fact that most of the hosts who come in 
are big names in some world. They are idols in, in many fields. They might be gigantic um, uh, rappers or politicians or movie stars or, or athletes. And uh, most of them um, are so comfortable in what they do that they've never, they haven't felt butterflies in, hmm. in, in years. But they walk into our, into our system, they walk into our show, and they are fish out of water, when they, at least when they host for the first time. And they have never read cue cards, and they never played <laughs> five, eight, ten characters in, in one, one performance, if any characters at all. They, uh, they, they, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. And for the first time in a long time, they're feeling those butterflies. And they are fish out of water. And it's sort of my job to handhold those big superstars through that process. And it is a fascinating philosophic and, and psychological experiment for me to see how they react, how they handle that pressure, how they deal with the thought of, oh, my God, I could really embarrass myself here. And it, you know, it all comes together in just three more days. So uh, that, that's, a, that, that's a joy uh, a joyful part of my job to watch that happen, help them through and watch how they handle it. Do you have the equivalent of a locker room speech in those situations? Do you have times where you've kind of had to, you know, put the counselor's hat on and, and put a hand on somebody's shoulder and talk them down? Or do you, do you try to rev them up like a, like a football coach? What do you do? I'll tell a story about my first year. In fact, the fifth show I directed was, um, was uh, was hosted by Alec Baldwin. He had done it before, he's done it more than anyone else. He is great at it, and he was so smooth. And things went from we, the rehearsal was easy, and and uh, and the sketches were smooth. And my work was easier than it had been for those other four shows. And people said afterwards, "Man, that's a show you should uh, submit for an Emmy. That was great." But there was a kind of a cloud over the entire operation relative to the following week because the host and musical guest was a guy named Chris Bridges, also mm -hmm. known as Ludacris, sure. the rapper Ludacris. And uh, I could sense that people were thinking, oh, my God, after this great week with Alec Baldwin, we got to deal with this kid. And we have, he's got no backing experience we know of. He's got no comedy chops that we know of. He might come in with a, a, a chip on his shoulder and an entourage, and this could be a real letdown after what we've just been through with Alec. And uh, I didn't know any better, but I could sense that there that, that there was some concern about about what he would bring to the table. Well, that Wednesday read through uh, went smoothly. All he could read fine, but he didn't bring anything to the, any of the characters, any of the scripts. Um, uh, Thursday we rehearsed uh, some of the uh, we rehearsed his music first, and that was he knows how to do that. That was relatively tame and and, and fine. Uh, but then we rehearsed the easy sketches first. The cue cards weren't ready, and the first sketch was just a talk show or sort of a big round table of cast and, and, and ludicrous to perform this, this little talk show. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, I rehearsed the easy, I rehearsed out on the floor at first, and I cued Keenan, and he just jumps off the wall with some fabulous character, and the entire crew's laughing, and, 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 and it's, uh, it's just a typical start to a, an SNL uh, rehearsal. And I look over at Chris, and he's sitting there holding a script. His character appears late in that sketch. And uh, and his hands were shaking. The whole script was sort of rattling. 
And I thought, oh, man, we're in trouble. I, I, I think this kid might be on something. What finally circled around to his first line in that deep baritone voice of his came out with a little quiver in it. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute. He's, he's not on something. He's nervous. <laughs> of course he's nervous. Who wouldn't be? You're sitting there with, a, uh, with the best sketch actors in the world. You know, you're 23 years old, and you've got to come up with some line reading in the middle of all of this. And, and I'd be nervous, too. Well, for the next two days, he worked harder than any host we've ever had. We usually bring the host out last for any given rehearsal because he's in almost every one. We wait till everybody's gathered and set the props are ready and stuff. But he would be the first one on set for every rehearsal. He would have have taken notes on his script and ask me questions about, hey, could I, could I cross over here during this or could I pick up a prop now or, or, or could I use an accent or something? Hmm. He, he, the only attitude he showed was, I want to make this work. <laughs> and I, I was so impressed with how hard he worked for those next two days. But on Saturday, we got through up to, up to dress rehearsal and, and it's not a very forgiving system to a late starter. So he, he struggled a bit. He's still searching for cue cards and stumbling over some lines and forgot, forgot some stuff he had to do. And so the dress rehearsal was a little rough. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm a director. Maybe I can help. And I jumped up out of the control and ran down to the entrance to the studio just as he was coming out. And I stopped him. I said, hey, Chris, I got to tell you something, man. I said, I've only done five of these, but, but you, you have really impressed me. You've come so far in just two days. And he looked up and down the hall to see if anybody was around. And he kind of grabbed me by the lapels and sort of pushed me against the wall. And he said, oh, thank you so much for telling me that, man. He said, oh, I had, no, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. This is really hard. But hey, hear nothing from the director that helps. Thank you, thank you. Well, he went on and did the live show, and what an improvement. It was a terrific show, and he was good. Oh, there were actually uh, uh, one or two sketches. There was a sketch he did with Daryl Hammond near the end of the show. Two old guys sitting on a bench. It was just sort of a, 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 a philosophical sketch about old men and looking at looking at young kids. But it was just charming, and his character was so sweet. And I was so proud of him. And I jumped up after the show ended. I ran into his dressing room, and and now there was a whole entourage in there. I was hmm. filled with his buddies. With, and, and, and but he saw me. He sort of sort of pushed his way through. His friends came over and shook my hand. He said, "Hey, hey thanks a lot for talking to me between shows, man. That that that, that helped me a lot." I said, "Hey, you don't have to thank me. You you proved me right. You just did. You you came through." And he got quiet again, and he said, "Hey, did, did you tell, could you go tell my mom that?" <laughs> His mother was on the other side of the, uh, of the dressing room, and, uh, and sort of a straight-laced church lady just standing there in his, her son's dressing room. And I said, hey, your son did great. And she said, well, thank you, but you tell me when he doesn't do well, too. <laughs> so it was this hardcore rapper. He just wanted to make his mom proud. That's fantastic. And, and every coach knows how to push the right button. Every successful coach knows how to push the right buttons and the right people. And I, you know, I've heard Joe Torrey say, you don't treat everybody equally. You treat them all fairly. And there's a difference. And I'm sure you found that out, uh, having to deal with all the different personalities, uh, that come in to host the show. It's been a big difference and it's been a big learning experience and it's been, uh, just an exhilarating one too. So I, I want to close with this, Don, uh, you and I, in, in obviously much different 
job descriptions, we deal in an arena that has to have a live audience. Uh, you're, you're also very involved in Broadway, and obviously they can't work without a live audience. Uh, Saturday Night Live, it's the show, it's the brand. Now, the show has gone on to produce a few uh, funny shows in the last several weeks uh, with these stay-at-home versions, but it's really kind of what you've been forced into. It's not the essence of the show, and sports is the same way. Uh, the performers have to have the audience in front of them. It's really what makes it great, and it's hard to even visualize what these two worlds are like if there's not an audience to watch it. Um, and given that you've taken, what, now 14 years in this particular uh, part of the field, uh, I'm just curious how, you, how you're feeling right now about where we are and, and where we might be going. I, uh, I think about that a lot and uh, have uh, some anxiety about it. But I also watched those shows. I had very little to do with those at-home shows, but I watched it and I thought, wow, they are so much better than I expected them to be. <laughs> they got better and better from show one to two to three. They discovered some things that that uh, that that uh, none of us would have discovered if we hadn't been forced into this. And quite frankly, when you talk about theater, I watched a production um, from the public theater that was done live via Zoom uh, uh, last month. It was the story of a, of a family that, that was in a cycle of uh, four different productions about that family. I'd seen the, the others all live. Actually, this was the fifth one. And I thought, hey, I'm sitting here by myself. I'm watching it on a laptop. But guess what? It's just as moving. It's just as soulful. It's just as important as any of those other four that I saw live in a big, gigantic dark room with, with a couple of hundred other people. And it's a different way. It's a different experience. It's a different way of telling a story. But it's still valid. It, 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 it's still... It is um, is important storytelling, and I think maybe we've got to say, hey, uh, let's not say when can we get back to doing things the way we used to do them. Why don't we say how can we use what we've been forced into learning in this period of time to tell stories in another way, in a different way, in a better way, or at least in a valid way? And I thought, you know, I'll bet. 80 years ago, when people sat around a room, and there were a lot of uh, creative people who said, this, what's, this, what's this thing, television? Wait a minute, hmm. the, the, all these little, these little uh, fuzzy black and white figures on a tiny little box, and there's no audience, and no live music, and, and uh, how can we tell stories that way? Well, just like Stephen Sondheim says, they found a way to make a hat where there was no hat. Hmm. And uh, perhaps we can continue to make hats where there are no hats in, in the, the same kind of creative use of these new tools. Now, that's not necessarily applicable to, to sporting events, but maybe there, there's some tie over there, that we, some layover there, some overlap there where we can find ways to, uh, to explore those parts of our our, our loves and beings and souls that 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 need competition or need uh, need a laugh uh, in, in different ways. 
My thanks to Don Roy King, award-winning director of Saturday Night Live. If you're new here to the 30 with Murdy podcast, please check out the archive at radio.com or Apple Podcasts. You can check out our varied catalog from these past few months, which have included screenwriter Angelo Pizzo, actor D.B. Sweeney, former Yankee Bobby Richardson, and the genius behind the Super 70s sports Twitter account, Ricky Cobb, among so many others. Please make sure to subscribe and leave reviews like all the cats say. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.